in my group, um, we came up with the 15, and um, I felt comfortable with the first part, but the middle part where we went into what goes around comes around has become me, what goes around comes around in a way that helps him or her learn and grow. I kind of felt that that had a negative connotation to it and doesn't represent the loving kindness. Um, just because it's not really our job to determine um, how that person's gonna need to grow or learn. And I wouldn't wanna, I mean, if someone did something bad to me and it caused me pain, I wouldn't wanna wish pain on them. Okay, um, so we wouldn't wanna be specific about how the person would learn and grow, but we just want to place it out there as an intention and we wouldn't say that to the person directly. We would just hold it in our own uh, loving kindness practice. Does this make sense? Good, thank you. So it's made, instead of what goes around comes around, which is wishing the universe to perform the retaliation for us. <laughs> We're moving toward the uh, what goes us what goes around turns us around. See, it has a, a it has the idea of tr oh transformation is possible rather than retribution. That's a central move that would happen when you commit yourself to the loving kindness, and that's what these are. These are the practical, specific ways for the metta practice, the loving-kindness practice, to show itself. And you would only want to do the ones that touch you, that somehow move you, oh yes, I want to be like this. Good, thank you for bringing that up. Somebody else? Way in the back. So uh, several of these, the ones I guess you could say reply to friendship, like 12, 13, and 15 are very easy for me to do as long as I don't become attached, but that seems to happen with some frequency. So just maybe a comment. That okay, yes. The attachment, the compulsion, the restlessness, all of that would get in the way. So that's what shows us that the over-attachment in, in the sense of clinging, not attachment in a positive way, that the, the style of clinging and compulsion somehow interfere with how our love can come through. What an important realization. They're not just sitting there as difficulties, as painful realities in our psyche, they're also roadblocks to the, the natural capacities for love, wisdom, and healing. Somebody else had a, yes, right here. <clears throat> Uh, 
Well, I'm so glad you're responding to these. And uh, I really hope you're going to keep this, these pages and work with them in whatever way helps you. And you're always welcome to make copies and share. If you have a group that you're working with, this would be a really good form of discussion. And it certainly is useful in a relationship. So yes. um, a number of these talk about the idea that of sort of being very good and honest and thoughtful when people might be hurtful or disrespectful or not particularly nice. Um, and in the CIA one, you say, in those cases, sort of walk away. But a lot of these are very much about accepting how people being not necessarily that fault for you, like rising above. And I'm wondering if you could, ha you know, that's very easy to say, I guess, in concept, harder to execute in real life. So if you could just speak to that, please. Thank you. Yes, because we wouldn't want to look at these as passive, like, oh, this is making me more passive. It's accept in the sense of accept the things that cannot change about others or that don't seem to change. Again, it's not the resignation. Uh, the, um, it's accepting as letting this in as information rather than as judgment. How do I notice this as information rather than turning it into a reason to judge others. So I would put it that way. So I'm noticing how others are, but I come from a position that has this integrity. And so no matter what they do, it does not alter the style that I come in with. As Shakespeare says, <clears throat> love is not love which alters when it alteration finds or bends with the remover to remove. So it doesn't alter because others have altered and it can't be bent by those who try to remove it from you. Love is not love which alters when it alteration finds or bends with the remover to remove. Oh no, it is an ever-fixed mark that looks on tempests, but is never shaken. So he's saying, even when it sees those threatening skies, a storm coming, a hurricane coming, looks on tempests, but is never shaken. It has an equanimity in it. Oh. Now there'll be a storm. How do I prepare myself for this? As opposed to, why is this happening? Oh no, it is an ever-fixed mark which looks on tempests but is never shaken. It is a star to every wandering bark. So not only is it, um, not only is, is this love um, equipping me for whatever may happen, but it's even like a north star that's guiding me. It is a star to every wandering bark ship. 
Okay. Uh, yes. So the one that struck me <clears throat> was number 11 about trust. Um, the second part of it I'm okay with as far as my own trustworthiness. I've, I'm feeling much better about that in myself and, and being willing to rebuild trust. Where I'm having problems now is learning to trust others when the record shows that because I'm having a really hard time differentiating between um, in intimate committed relationships, not superficial ones, but intimate committed relationships, the difference between secrecy and privacy. It seems like a very fine line, and I, I have a really hard time treading it. My background is from, you know, an adult child of an alcoholic, so I already have that as a major trigger of secrecy mm. left, mm. right, and sideways, and so I'm very aware that it's up for me, but I still have a really hard time treading that line, so any insight you can give for that would be helpful. Okay, she's making the distinction between being surreptitious, where you're secretly hiding, and just having a natural privacy. So it's a boundary issue. <clears throat> what belongs to me and is not in my shareable universe? And what am I deciding to let be known? And the stronger we become, the more hegemony do we have over those two. So we're the ones who decide what am I willing to share and what belongs just to me. And everyone has a core identity with some feelings and felt senses that we know we don't want to share. Somehow they belong to us and we are the um, we are the holders and preservers of them, and it's okay with us that they belong just to us, and they they aren't shared even with those with whom we are in a strong, lasting relationship. So I make the case for that. And this would not be secrets. It's not like secret things you've done. It'd be more like uh, this. This has always been part of me and belonged to me, and I'm continuing to hold it. If the moment comes in which I feel like I want to share it, I can. But if I don't ever share it, that does not minimize or diminish my level of commitment. Can everybody make the case for this? You follow what I mean? Certain way of feeling or being in the world or could even be something that happens. Can you address when, when does it, when does, I'm interested in following up on her question of when does it feel like or what to do when it feels like it is actually dishonesty or, or, or betrayal or secrecy. Okay, it would never feel like dishonesty. It would always feel like this is mine. Um, it would have the, uh, it would have more of the flavor of um, my identity has a sector that is thoroughly mine. 
another sector that I share only with those I trust, and another sector that's for the world at large. Yeah. Down to you. Yes. Yes. When you suspect that the other person is not honest. Other person not honest towards you? Yes. yes. Well, that's. Your feelings as a recipient, not the actor. Yeah. Well, that's where you would speak up. That's where the ouch comes in. <laughs> uh, where you would say something like, uh, just want you to know that I'm open to knowing as much about you as you want to share. When you have the feeling that it's a secret about something that's been done, then that's a more gross kind of experience, and that's where you would speak up and say something like that. It feels like there's a secret here, and just want you to know I, I'm picking up on it. I don't know for sure, but I would really be open to talking about it. And of course, you can't force someone to go there. Yes? Um, I'm currently reading your book, Daring to Trust, because um, that's been an issue ongoing since my childhood. And I'm currently in a relationship where there has been some infidelity. And there's work we're working on, or I personally am, because uh, I can only be responsible for me, on repairing that level of trust. So it was really interesting in, re in 11 where it says, you know, I'm learning to trust when the record always shows they can be trusted. But what about where I'm trying because I love a person and that, and that relationship is important to me and of high value, and I'm looking to repair that and, and, learn, and, and regain that trust and not live in a life of paranoia where I am kind of always suspicious and, you know, wondering what's going on and kind of moving back into that realm of finding equanimity inside myself so that I don't have that level of distrust. Mm -hmm. Well, first of all, it isn't just a matter of equanimity. Some people keep you on edge because they always seem right on the cusp of something untrustworthy. And so you would, that's where we go with our 30-day approach. <clears throat> I'm not going to feel this for more than 30 days before I put the cards on the table. And let's see what's going on. There's something going on here. It would be good to trust your intuition along those lines and be able to bring up the topic. Okay, let's have two more questions and then we will go on. In uh, the last exercise, we were talking about the uh, self-forgiveness. I think it's 31, I'm not sure. And, you know, we both noted how, how, much e how, how much easier it is for the two of us to forgive others and how much more difficult uh, to forgive ourselves and any... Um, insight, advice, thoughts you have would be appreciated. Yes. Um, when it's hard to forgive yourself, you're probably still responding to that parental or what other, whatever other judgmental archetype was with you, especially in early life, that still holds you accountable. Whereas the real love, the unconditional love, I think I have in here somewhere, it doesn't keep a record of wrongs. And could we do that for ourselves? Could we not keep a record of our wrongs? If we could, 
that would be the equivalent of loving ourselves. So the, the unable to forgive myself is in the realm of not loving myself enough. Also, it helps um, using the 12-step approach of taking the inventory of where I have failed and making amends in whatever way I can <clears throat> with the result that um, this releases me from the reprehensibility. Mm -hmm. Even to tell yourself that, I have paid my fine. Now I can move on. Even saying something like that helps us. Okay, we have one last question way in the back. Yes, the eyeglasses. Okay. <clears throat> I also wanted to comment on the ouch and in my conversation really thought about how difficult it is to even say the ouch and um, acknowledge yes. that it's not only difficult to bring loving kindness, but to accept it because there's an element of not saying ouch where I'm wanting to hold on to that person has hurt me, but I'm not going to let you know, and you should figure it out. And, and um, just how to work through that, um, in some ways it feels vulnerable, and putting your cards, like you said, putting your cards out on the table when you say, ouch. Yes, it's, um, we have the fear of saying, ouch, which is the anger. <clears throat> because we're afraid that the other person might not like us if he or she notices that we're angry. So to do this, that would have to become a little less important, the reaction of others. And, um, and um, Abraham Maslow noticed that the healthy people, which was 2% of the society, <clears throat> the people who had self-actualized, who became their real self, one of their characteristics was uh, they just no longer, it no longer mattered quite as much whether people liked them or not. In other words, they had come to the given, some people will like me, and some people won't, and that has to be okay. And then I don't design everything so that I will be liked. So that was one part of your question, but then there was another part. There was something else you asked? Oh, okay. So it's the idea that... Um, oh, yeah. Oh, right that sometimes it's easy to give the loving kindness, but it's hard to let it in. Is that the idea? Yeah, or we focus on how come, uh, we focus on how come other peoples aren't giving it to us, when in fact we're actually having difficulty receiving, even if it is there. Yes. Seems like the biggest issue is the fear of letting love in because it comes at us in such a real way. We're used to 
everything coming with a velvet glove or sugar-coated. And when love comes through, it can only come through so sincerely and so really that that itself could feel like it's too impactful, it's too overwhelming, and it even seems demanding of a certain sincerity in our response, which we may not be ready for. And I'm thinking of the, the, those lines by Pink Floyd. Um, <clears throat> All alone or in twos, the ones who really love you walk up and down outside the wall, some hand in hand, some gather together in bands, the bleeding hearts of the artistes take their stand. And when they've given you their all, some stagger and fall. After all, it's not easy banging your heart against some mad bugger's wall. <laughs> so that, that feeling that, you know, the, those scared people on the other side of the wall who just don't want to let you in, and then the recognition, gee, this is so hard trying to make some type of impact and the other person is just too scared to let it happen. Well, our time is almost up, so I just want to be sure to say how much I've enjoyed this ongoing conversation <clears throat> on such important issues as how our psychological and our spiritual work come together and how much of it is grace-guided. And this whole time together has had that feeling of a grace. So I'm really thankful to you for that part. And um, I would like to close with a poem a few lines of which I recited at the beginning of the day, so this kind of pulls it together. This poem is by Wallace Stevens, who's one of our Connecticut poets. And um, the only word you might not be familiar with is hepatica, which is a, a weed that grows in Connecticut and other New England states shaped like a liver, hence hepatica. It feels good as it is without the giant, the thinker of the first idea. Perhaps the truth depends upon a walk around the lake, a composing as the body tires, a stop to see hepatica, a stop to watch a definition growing certain and a weight within that certainty, a rest in the swags of pine trees bordering the lake. Perhaps there are moments of inherent excellence 
as when a cock crows on the left and all is well. Incalculable balances at which a kind of Swiss perfection comes, not balances that we achieve, but balances that happen as a man and a woman meet and love forwith. Perhaps there are moments of awakening, extreme, fortuitous, personal, in which we more than awaken, sit on the edge of sleep as on an elevation and behold the academies like structures in a mist. Thank you. Thank you all so much, and thank you to Dr. Rico. Uh, one final log uh, logistical announcement. For those of you who are participating for CE credits, please do make a civilized line towards the back of the room to turn in your evaluation, sign out, and pick up your certificate. The certificates will not be available at any other time. And I'd also like to thank you all for coming. Thank you for your support for Spirit Rock, and thank you for your support for David Rico. Have a wonderful afternoon. And don't forget Thank to take you. a right on Sir Francis Drake. What is your name? Sarah Noach. <laughs>